The rest of you want to get out your message outline that says the voice of the gospel on it. And you'll want to have that that you can follow along. Okay. And we're at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And Eve is going to read that for us this morning. Second Timothy 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, are, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from, their, from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolishness, ignorant controversies. You know that these breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, be with us this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word, that we might hear what you would have for us. We ask that you would be powerful among us at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I have... uh, in my time, bought a few baseball bats. And I know you can buy one that's cheap and may not last that long, and you can buy one that costs a lot more and hopefully will last a lot longer. And I brought a couple bats with me this morning. And I was really tempted to bring a ball and and smack it, but I didn't trust everybody's reaction time. But anyway, this is a, a cheaper wooden bat. This is a youth wooden bat, Louisville Slugger. And um, it's not going to last a long time. If it was used regularly in uh, games, uh, maybe a couple of months at best. And that's about what you'll get out of uh, your basic intro wooden bat. Uh, The other bat I brought with me costs a little bit more. It's a little bit bigger and heavier. It's more, it's almost an adult-sized bat, and um, this one's going to last a very long time, mostly because it's Sam's souvenir bat from when he played in Cooperstown, New York, and it's never actually going to be used in a real game. So that's why it's going to last a long time. But uh, this is a little bit bigger 
uh, bat heavier and uh, just much better made. But like I said, it's not going to be used. It's got his name on it and everything, and that goes back to his room. There's lots of bats available today. You can uh, uh, go out and look at them, and they come in a variety of weights and lengths. And uh, that's how you measure a bat is by the comparison between how long it is and how much it weighs. So an adult bat is a minus three. It can't weigh uh, more than um, three ounces less than it is long. So if it's 32 inches long, it has to be at least 29 ounces. And then those uh, ratios go up as you get younger. And so when you start and say Little League, the lightest bat, you can get a minus 13 aluminum bat. And that's, uh, it can be 13 ounces lighter than it is long. And uh, that changes very various levels. And uh, obviously, they come in a variety of ways. There's wood bats, there's aluminum bats, there's titanium bats, there's even wood-aluminum combination uh, bats. And today's bats, if you go down to, say, the Sports Authority, uh, you can find a starter bat uh, for somebody maybe in, in Pee Wee, uh, just starting out, for about $15. And they go up from there, a top-of-the-line aluminum composite adult-sized bat goes for about $400. And, uh, but that, as expensive as that is, is not the most expensive bat. Because uh, just a few years ago, there was a massive 46-ounce Louisville Slugger. So it had the same logo as this bat, but uh, it was almost twice the weight of this bat. It was 46 ounces, and uh, it sold at auction for $1.26 million. That is an expensive bat. What in the world could possibly make a simple baseball bat worth that much money to anyone? I have no idea. But it was worth that much uh, to somebody simply because of who used it, because it was the bat used by Babe Ruth in uh, his first, the very first baseball game that was ever played at Yankee Stadium in 1923. And in the third inning of that game, the Bay blasted a home run into uh, the short porch, the right field bleachers in Yankee Stadium, which were built exactly that way for him. Um, he hit most of his home runs there, and so they sort of shortened the field and designed it uh, specifically for Babe Ruth. And that's why it's called the house that the Babe built, or the house that Ruth built. Um, and somebody just laid down over a million bucks for that bat. It's just a piece of wood until someone important used it to do something important. And that's what gave the bat great value. And using a baseball bat as an analogy, we can ask, what is it that gives people great value? Could it be that someone important is going to use us to do something important? Pretty much. That's what gives ordinary people like you and me great 
value. Being used by the most important person in the universe to do something he considers important. And an ordinary life is never quite ordinary again once that life has been used by God. And his choice of the person that he will use is not based on the things that most people look for. God doesn't care about your charisma or credentials or connections or cash. He's looking for character. And he's a holy God and can only use holy instruments and people who keep themselves clean for his service. And Paul paints a picture of two kinds of believers, one useful to the Lord and one of little use uh, to him. In 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 14, our passage for today. And in there he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So what do I have to do to have the honor, the incredible value of being someone the high king of heaven can use, a man or a woman through whom God's work will be done in people's lives? That's what Paul is going to tell us. But first we have to remember the context of this, and the context is persecution. Uh, Paul wrote this letter in the time frame of approximately A.D. 64 to A.D. 66, near the end of his life, right before he was martyred. Church history and tradition tell us that he was beheaded on the order of the Roman emperor. And in A.D. 64, the Roman emperor was named Nero. And he was responsible for one of the uh, first great persecutions of Christians, an outcome of the great fire of Rome in A.D. 64. And all of Rome blamed Nero for that fire. And so he needed a scapegoat, and he needed to shift the blame away from himself to someone else. And there was the church, a convenient group of people to be blamed. So Paul is writing this letter. He's a Christian. He's one of the leaders of the Christians, and he's writing from Rome, where he's in prison, in bondage, in chains. And he's writing to his friend Timothy, uh, who's in Ephesus. And through Timothy, he's writing to that church there. And uh, they're all trying to figure out what's going on. You know, people have fled away from Rome. Uh, probably looked a lot like some of the pictures we saw this morning in Sunday school of uh, the destruction from Hurricane Katrina, except this was fire, not hurricane. But it was a devastated place. And so everybody's wondering, what's going on in my next What's going to happen? And so Paul has been writing up to now and encouraging Timothy and the church to stand tall and uh, to suffer if need be. We've seen that in the last four weeks. And now he turns to his other major concern of countering false teachers who have subverted the word of God. And he commands Timothy to remind the people of these things. That is to keep reminding the church of the faithful word, both of its comfort to believers and its warning to apostates. And he starts by reminding us that we need to be an unashamed worker. An unashamed worker. That should be the first uh, blank there in your outline. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So at the same time that Timothy is charged to remind them of these things, he's also to charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Literally, it says not to have word fights. Not to have word fights. Word fights seem intellectual. Such arguing can be nuanced and ego-puffing and quite subtle. He's not talking about a shouting match here. But the kind of debate where cutting wit is more important than such things as logic or truth. You could turn on any variety of talk shows on television, even the sort of highbrow political ones, and you have a lot of word fights. And the guy that wins is the guy who has the sharpest wit, not necessarily the guy who's right. One commentator said that word fights can foster a theological discussion, which is in the end purely verbal, having nothing to do with the realities of the Christian religion. He said word fights are the feasts of amateurs who pretend to have knowledge. And Paul adds that Timothy is not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And Paul described the ruin that comes from quarreling over words in his first letter to Timothy, when he said that the one who teaches false doctrine, 1 Timothy 6, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Hassle follows hassle, producing perpetual verbal combat. Later, when advising Titus about these same kind of people, he ordered Titus in Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Those are pretty tough words for someone who's just running off at the mouth. But remember, the topic that they're having these verbal uh, bouts over is the truth of God's word. It's very interesting that C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, in the very first letter of the older Screwtape, and this is from an older devil to a younger devil in trying to... uh, uh, subvert God's people and keep them away from the truth of the gospel. And the very first letter of counsel to the younger uh, demon, whose name was Wormwood, he says, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrine as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical. Jargon not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. I thought that was really insightful. 
Satan knows how to get folks to quarrel about words that have no meaning. And if every opinion is regarded as equally valid, as postmodernism says today, then words have no meaning. And if religion is merely a private matter, which may or may not have anything to do with a person's character, then you're always going to have friction and debate within the church. And the damaging effect of such debates is they will, as Paul says in verse 16, they'll lead people into more and more ungodliness. Or in verse 18, they are upsetting the faith of some. Now that word upsetting is actually much stronger in Greek. It's the word catastrophe, from which we get the word catastrophe. It's like spelled exactly the same except with a K instead of a C. And Paul is saying this false teaching is a catastrophe to the faith of some people. And because of the serious nature of these word fights, Timothy is told to charge them before God. Quarreling over words is a grave matter. And God himself will call such word warriors to account. Remember this when you encounter people like this, either in the church or at your door. And so if you shouldn't be having word fights, what should you be doing instead? And Paul tells them to focus on word handling, word handling. His warning to the word warriors uh, in Timothy's church in Ephesus is followed by a very personal and well-known command to Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. Some of uh, the uh, kids in our church have gone to Awanas out in Percival, and this is where they get their name. Uh, Worker approved, not ashamed. That's the acronym. Comes from this passage. And the first way you can rightly handle the word of truth is to give it straight. Being one who is Rightly handling the word requires getting it right and giving it straight. Now, some versions have rightly dividing the word. And I think that's a gross mistranslation. It's led a lot of people down some strange theological paths. Rightly handling, some versions correctly handling or accurately handling, has as its basis the Greek word orthos, which means straight. Same word which we build words like orthopedic or orthodox, uh, having it straight. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word occurs. So the exact charge to Timothy then is to impart the word of truth without deviation, uh, undiluted, straight. The word means straight. Give it to him straight. And he's referring to a straight, precise, careful communication of the word of truth which is the gospel. Paul uses that phrase a number of times. In Ephesians 1, he said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, he said, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel. So the apostolic command is to get it right and give it straight, and that has become a 2,000-year-old charge to all of us who are called to teach and preach the gospel. But it struck me, this flies directly in the face of so much of what is happening today in our churches, where instead of faithful exposition, there is disexposition. 
The text is announced and read. You settle back, open your Bible, waiting for a sermon on, uh, from the truth of God's word to find the text is departed from and never mentioned again. Some disexposition parades as exposition when the text is referred to, but there's no real engagement with the text uh, in its context. There's no attempt to convey what it was saying then or what it says, says today. It's just referred to as a jumping off point to well-traveled sayings disguised as wisdom. One of the most common ways the text is abused is to take it out of context. So you don't know what's happening. Why was it written? Who wrote it? What was the background? And this is very common. Scripture is wrenched out of context and misapplied like uh, the preacher who used Revelation 11.10 as a Christmas text because the first part of that verse says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. And that sounds okay, except he didn't have the second half of the verse, which says, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Have yourself a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's just not what that text was talking about. Another way scripture is abused is by forcing it through some uh, to be viewed through some favorite lens, psychological, uh, political, therapeutic, chauvinistic, social, family. So that no matter what text you begin with, the sermon always ends up on the home or the flag or emotional wholeness. The psychological lens is especially harmful because most congregations are not going to recognize the psychological subtext that's being read into the passage. Finally, probably the worst way scripture is abused is by moralizing. The predominance of self-help and how-to sermons fall into this category. This, of course, comes from that great Reformation slogan, sola bootstrapsa, by my bootstraps alone. Yeah, that one didn't make the logo. For example, in this kind of mistaken uh, preaching, Paul's words in Philippians 3.13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, and they stop there. And it's taken to teach the importance of having goals. It's not a bad thing. And the pastor preaches on goal setting without referencing Paul's goal, which, as the rest of the verse says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That passage isn't about goal setting. It's about moving forward to Christ. How far this is from the call for us to be rightly handling the word of truth, getting it right and giving it straight. How far this is from so much of today's preaching. William Willimon, who's actually a Methodist bishop, uh, don't agree with him on a, a number of things, but he's a brilliant writer and quite sarcastic, which I find amusing. Um, and he said, this preaching reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby. So why does Paul feel it's necessary to tell people about rightly handling the word of truth? 
because they weren't doing it. And speaking wrongly leads to acting wrongly. And so Paul addresses godless words. Godless words. He's instructed Timothy to warn the Ephesians about mishandling God's word in their word fights. And then he's instructed him to correctly handle the word of truth. And now he returns to mishandling it through too much talk. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. What is so bad about irreverent babble? Well, first of all, it brings ungodliness. Paul's using sarcasm here because the assertion more and more ungodliness is literally will make progress in ungodliness. Apparently, that's the slogan the false teachers were using. You make progress in your life. And he's saying, oh, you're going to make progress in ungodliness. So rather than improving, the movement is downward towards ungodliness because irreverent babble is not godly talk. It's against God. It's godless, trivial words which have become substitutes for deeds. That's one of the things he's driving at is people are talking and not doing. An abundance of theological chatter produces clever, speculative, uh, intellectually reckless, and ultimately spiritually destructive talk. So we have to test ourselves for our uh, Bible studies, small groups, uh, anything that we characteristically call fellowship. Are the words there moving us closer to God, elevating our words, deeds, or not? And if they're not, there's some serious examination that needs to happen. Second, Paul says their talk will spread like gangrene. Of all the words in the English language, few bring a less pleasant picture to my mind than gangrene. Reminds me of the hospital scene from the movie Gettysburg, where limbs have been amputated and just piled up into big piles of arms and legs, and infection is rampant. The idea of gangrene frightens me because it spreads rapidly and literally kills off limbs and members of your body if it's not quickly treated. For those brave souls still listening, he brings this up, this unpleasant ailment, in this letter to Timothy. It's in the context of a seasoned uh, pastor giving advice to a rookie pastor. And the language is thoroughly unpleasant. He says their talk will spread, literally have pasture like gangrene. And the picture is one of gangrene spreading like a flock of sheep pouring into an open pasture. And it's, the image is meant to be repulsive. Talk can be dangerous. The speed at which you, it spreads makes it a real threat. And we make a grave mistake when we assume that what we can't see isn't harmful. The effects of ungodly talk, Paul is saying, are like the effects of gangrene. They don't show up until they're already doing damage. And once it starts spreading, there may be no stopping it. And the comparison Paul makes is especially meaningful when you apply it to the metaphor he uses in several other of his letters that Christians collectively make up the body of Christ. We're all members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Uh, there are a number of places you can go. Paul uses this. And so when ungodly talk 
infects one member, it rapidly spreads through the body. Now, we have all sorts of disguises, church disguises for ungodly talk, whether it's gossip or criticism. You know, we just want to share concerns about someone. Or we have a prayer request to offer when our real motive is just to break the bad news about somebody else. But ungodly talk not only injures fellow members of the body, but it brings great harm to the talker themselves because it builds up their pride and increases their contempt for others. When you think of dangers to the body of Christ, you might not put talk at the top of your list, but Paul sees that it can be deadly. And two of the principal purveyors of this infection are oozing with heresy. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They are a catastrophe for the faith of some. Now, we've already met Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul states he had already excommunicated this guy. But now he has a new sidekick and they're working hard to spread infection. And their insistence that the resurrection has already happened is not talking about Christ's resurrection, but their insistence is that uh, the final resurrection, the great resurrection of the living and the dead has already taken place spiritually for all believers and was not going to take place physically. It was over, they claimed. All the promised end time eternal realizations are now yours. And the damning thing about this teaching, apart from untruthfulness, is it ultimately attacks the reality of Jesus' physical resurrection. The physical resurrection of believers is so linked to Christ's physical resurrection that if Christians are not physically resurrected, that would prove that Christ had not been bodily resurrected either. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul directly ties this doctrine of the physical resurrection to Christ's resurrection. And they're denying this. They're saying there's no physical resurrection. It's just a spiritual thing and you have it now. You get all the benefits now. Everything should be great for you now. And it's just a first century version of the health and wealth gospel. And Paul says this teaching is like gangrene. Even though it's been sugar-coated and wrapped in Hymenaeus and Philetus' smiling declaration that they have the fullness of the resurrection now, health, wealth, privilege, and power. And that's really the good news. Paul's preaching? Well, just look at his circumstances. He's in prison. It must be a lie. If he had the authentic good news, he'd be living the good life like us. And it's like spiritual anthrax. (coughs) It's causing a catastrophe, upsetting the faith of some. And so for them, and for people like them, Paul has words of judgment. How will it turn out for those who mishandle the word with word fights and irreverent babble? 
as opposed to the believer who's rightly handling the word of truth, those who get it right and give it straight. And Paul takes them back to an episode in Israel's history. He goes back into history, a famous event, the rebellion of Korah. It's described in the book of Numbers in chapter 16. Because there, there were three Levites, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they had convinced 250 other leaders to come with them. And they rose up against Moses and his leadership in an effort to take over the priesthood from Aaron. And so Moses set up a confrontation. And the rebellious leaders were to present themselves carrying their priestly censers, which were a hanging pot that burned incense. And they're to stand over here on one side and Aaron and his priests were to come over and stand on this other side and they had their censers uh, all carrying their hanging pots, burning incense. And at the appointed moment, the glory of the Lord appeared. And the Lord told Moses and the rest of the people to move back, to distance themselves um, from the rebels. So they all step back and move away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And then Moses prophesied, and the earth split open like a giant mouth and swallowed their tents, their livestock, their families, them, every trace of them whole. And then fire roared down from heaven on the other 250 leaders, incinerating them. And the only thing that remained was their red-hot censers, which were left burning on the ground. And Moses had the uh, Aaron and his priests gather them all up and they were hammered out flat and used to overlay the altar of God. And God had delivered Moses from the rebels and he vindicated Moses' words, number 16.5, when Moses had said, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And then when that was translated into the Greek, it was the Lord knows those who are his. And so that's what's being quoted here by Paul. How it will turn out for Paul and Timothy in relation to those who are rebelling against God's word, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he goes back and says, you know, it didn't work out so well for those guys last time or that time they had rebelled against God. Be warned. This is serious business. And but then he says, the real answer is that God's firm foundation stands. That is, the true believers of the church of Ephesus, those not swayed by heresy, will stand firm. The foundation, which is the church, is inscribed with a dual inscription. First about God's knowledge and second about man's duty. And he says, first, the Lord knows those who are his. He quotes Moses' rebuke to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram at their rebellion, and by application is rebuking uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. At the same time, those words should be a sovereign comfort to true believers, to the church. The Lord knows those who are his. When the ultimate fires of judgment fall, and this place is just a cinder, God will know those who are his. Jesus himself said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. 
Some thinks that the Lord knows those who are his became sort of a proverbial saying of comfort in this time of great persecution. When people were suffering, they would encourage each other with these words. But the Lord knows those who are his. Second, regarding our duty, it says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Those who would take comfort in the first saying must take responsibility for the second. Knowing the deep truths of God demand deep things from us. So handling the word becomes of paramount importance. And we can't duck our privilege and responsibility to be one who rightly handles the word of truth. To be an unashamed worker, we need to get it right and we need to give it straight. Second, Paul says we need to be an honorable vessel. Starting at uh, verse uh, uh, 20 and 21, um, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And what we are is of utmost importance. A noble life has to have a noble heart. Honorable vessels are used for honorable purposes. And so Paul instructs Timothy on how to become an instrument for honorable purposes. And to illustrate his point, he sets before him the image of a house and all of its vessels and containers. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And a great house would have buckets and jars and cups made of wood and clay that would be used for the dishonorable purposes, such as the disposal of garbage and waste. But it would also have vessels of silver and gold that were used for honorable functions such as uh, dining and eating and entertaining. And the great house is Paul's metaphor for the church, the Christian community that he earlier called God's household in 1 Timothy 3. And the Christian community contains honorable and dishonorable vessels, both believers and false teachers, just as Israel had at the time of the rebellion of Korah. Jesus himself taught the same thing. He described the mixed nature of the church in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that they grow up together. And the Christian community has always, in fact, been a mixed bag. And that's the answer for those who uh, avoid church because it contains hypocrites. Well, of course it does. The church is there for hypocrites because that's where they can become vessels of honor. And Paul applies the picture in the next verse. He says, therefore, if you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. It calls for a conscious, willful cleansing. It's not something we do apart from grace. Paul uh, advice in Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does it, and then by his grace, we do it. So the self-cleansing here is from false teachers and their false doctrines and returning to the gospel of Christ. The cleansed then become honorable vessels, set apart as holy, useful uh, to the master, ready for every good work. Again, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 this time, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul's advice moves from the making of an honorable vessel 
to the maintenance of it. He gives a double command. In verse 22, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So an honorable vessel is maintained by flight. Flee youthful passions. And often this is interpreted to mean flee sensual desires. And while that's good counsel, that's not really the emphasis here because the following verses give no uh, emphasis to sensuality, but stress qualities that spring up from a youthful temperament, such things as impatience and contentiousness and irreverent babble and ungodly talk and ignorant controversies. He's still dealing with the verbal. And he says, youthful passions move us into those areas a lot quicker. And so you need to flee from that. And uh, things like impatience and contentiousness are more common among young professionals, pastors included. And Paul says they've got to go. Flee youthful passions. Don't get sucked into fruitless controversies. Secondly, the honorable vessel is maintained by pursuit. The running isn't all negative. He's supposed to run after four virtues, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Righteousness, the right conduct of someone who pleases God, and uh, faith, the belief in Christ and his word. Love is a love for people. It's an outward love. It's to love the people in his church. He's writing to Timothy. And when time and circumstances reveal that some of his saints were in fact big sinners, he's to go on loving them with all of their faults and weaknesses. And then peace, maintaining calmness and harmony with the people. And he was to do that in the company of other believers, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And the picture created by Paul's contrasting commands of flee and pursue is unique. Timothy is to flee as fast as his feet will carry him away from the youthful passions of impatience and harshness and the love of debate. And at the same time, he's supposed to sprint arms outstretched after righteous conduct and faith and love for others in peace. And such divinely ordered flight and pursuit would ensure the maintenance of his life as an honorable vessel. Christ would be pleased to fill him with grace and to serve it to the church through Timothy. And that's wisdom. Fleeing is as important as pursuing. Our no is as important as our yes. When we say no to unprofitable things, then we can say yes to the best things. So what should you flee and what should you pursue? To be an honorable vessel, we need to flee wrong and pursue right. And third, he says we need to be a gentle servant. He says, I'm just going to read um, verse 24 and, and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He starts off by telling Timothy to avoid foolish controversy. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The false teacher's arguments are stupid and ignorant, and it's tempting to use their foolishness against them. It would be easy to make them look silly. And Timothy was certainly in a position he could show his stuff, his biblical fidelity and knowledge and reasoned argument in contrast to their nonsense. But Paul warns him, says, because you know that they, ignorant controversies, breed quarrels. 
I've been in those kinds of conversations. And even if I knew I was right, very quickly you get sick and tired of what's being said. But you keep on arguing because your sin nature says you got to win. And it doesn't become about being right or truthful. The argument becomes about winning. And Paul is saying that you know, any of us who have an argumentative nature need to be careful. It's too easy to win the argument and lose the person. And that's not being a gentle servant, which is what Paul says we're supposed to be. So rather than arguing, Paul's servant lives out four positive injunctions. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, Somebody should be kind. He should be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting with gentleness. Kind to everyone, even those who disagree. Able to teach, skillful in teaching, fulfilling the major concern of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. He should be patiently enduring evil. Commentator William Barclay said, there may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does greater damage in the Christian church. Too many of us are quick to take offense and slow to forgive. But the fourth command is the one I want to talk about, correcting his opponents with gentleness. No clever put-downs of the false teachers was allowed, but just gentle correction, speaking the truth in love. And the foolish heretics are getting more than they deserve. They're getting gentle instruction. That's divine wisdom. I remember one time when I was serving in Alabama. One Sunday, I got a panic call early afternoon from a friend who had attended another church in town. It was someone I'd known socially. And the pastor there, who was also a friend, had asked everyone in the service that morning to stand up if they were willing to renounce the sin of racism. Now, this was in South Alabama. And one person, it's a congregation of maybe 300 people, one person wouldn't stand up. The entire church stood up except for one person. And so the pastor called that person out in the middle of the worship service and asked them to leave because they wouldn't renounce the sin of racism. But it turned out this was an elderly woman, a founding member of the church who was much loved by all. Additionally, she was hard of hearing. And she thought he was asking people to stand up if they needed to repent of that particular sin. And since she didn't consider herself a racist, she didn't stand up. And then she was asked to leave, and of course she was upset that the pastor thought she was a racist and embarrassed her in front of the whole church. And before you know it, there was a major revolt in the church. And I got a phone call. What do we do? And after many other phone calls, two days later, that Tuesday morning, two other pastors and I, a Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian, it's not a joke. This really happened. <laughs> we met with the pastor from this church. And when we met, he wasn't all that sure what he had done wrong. So we talked with him. We shared various scripture passages with him. But nothing seemed to have an effect until we read this passage. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
And he said, I absolutely agree with that. And I said, okay. Were you gentle? And he just stared at us. It was just dead silence. We're in a conference room in another church. And then he just started weeping. And he repented and he went back to his church and he repented before them. And I like to say the story had a happy ending. But about two years later, he did the similar, a similar thing. To the best of my knowledge, he is no longer in the ministry. It's a grave warning to act with gentleness. Peter warns us the same thing. 1 Peter 3. We read it as part of our responsive reading this morning. But in your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And we leave off the next phrase, which says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Your defense against others, against false teachers, against people with whom you vehemently vehemently disagree is still to treat them with gentleness and respect. And that is true for all of us. We rob the gospel of its power when we beat people with it instead of loving them with it. There is power in a life that refuses to quarrel and is gentle with others. The power of Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. And that's why Paul said, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.1. The ministry of an unashamed worker, an honorable vessel must be clothed as a gentle servant. Not quarrelsome, but pastoral, kind, teaching, patient, gently instructing. In contrast to this, throughout his letters to Timothy, Paul urges him to encourage sound words. He writes, 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me. More vivid translation of sound is healthy. Brings us back to that metaphor of the body. We should choose words, topics, conversations that promote the health of Christ's body. Healthy words are in line with biblical truth. They take into account God's grace and his gospel. All our words are a doctrine of sort whether sound or ungodly, healthy or infectious. We can't limit our theological awareness to Bible studies or sermons. We're all responsible for the health of the body. Proverbs 12:18 says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now all this is well and good to know, but in reality, a whole lot harder to do. And deep down, you and I think it ought to be easier. Professional pride keeps us from being gentle. And I imagine with this group being highly professional, this can happen a lot. It certainly happens with preachers, that being what I know best. I mean, I've studied hard. I squeezed a three-year Master of Divinity program into four and a half years. And I topped that off by squeezing a six-year doctor of ministry program into 11 years. (laughs) But inevitably, for any professional that spent a lot of time learning his or her craft, you will run into someone who hasn't had any of your training, and that person doesn't hesitate to tell you to your face that you're wrong, or that you're not doing it right, or you ought to be doing it this way. And it's not just pastors. I'm pretty sure carpenters are regularly being told how to build stuff. That mechanics are told how to repair cars. 
that teachers are told how to teach and doctors are told how to diagnose diseases and executives are told how to make business decisions. Attorneys are told how to argue cases and write legal documents. And parents are told how to parent by non-parents. And it happens all the time to all of us, regardless of what you do. But in fact, you may know what you're talking about. And the person challenging you doesn't. And you're pretty sure you can put him in his place on this point and that point and the other point. And you can make him feel small. And you can teach him a lesson. And somewhere down the line, you realize you've forgotten the most basic lesson of love and care, that you're not to be fighting over words. Paul says we're not to quarrel about words. Avoid irreverent babble. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Don't be quarrelsome. How do we learn that lesson? Think how it must have been for Jesus. How frustrated he must have been, not just with his opponents, but especially with his disciples. Apart from a few short rebukes, he normally teased them with a parable. They would say something outrageous. And he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he would coax them to look at things from a different viewpoint, pointing them to see things they had missed, correcting with gentleness, giving a defense with gentleness and respect. That's the voice of the gospel. And that should be our voice too. Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, there's some of us here pretty smart. And we're good with words. And we can use those words to hurt other people. But we can also use those words to mislead them, to deceive them. We can use them to lead them astray. We can pretend we're talking about God's word and talk about something else. It's really hard for us to rightly handle the word of truth. Sounds like it ought to be easier, but it's not. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to become good word handlers. That we would think before we speak, that we would remember all that you've said here about word fights and quarreling. Father, we're liable to go out and get in a word fight on the way home. We need your spirit to work within us so that we don't do that. So I ask this morning that your spirit would work powerfully among us, reminding us of your word, the word of truth, that we would begin to get a little bit better at handling it rightly. Do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.